Oh, Sean, I should say, I'm uh, I'm enjoying myself a nice, crisp, no boats on Sunday. From a person who doesn't drink cider, this is delicious. All right, well, at this point, this is now two episodes, so we just got to send them an email yeah. with an invoice. That's how sponsorship works, right? We just send an invoice and they just pay yeah. us. <laughs> We, we talked about your, your cider twice, so give us money. Um, uh, the usual amount. The usual, uh, cider contract. <laughs> the usual amount. You know. <laughs> this is the theme song at the start of the show. Stop wasting time on the theme song. Gonna watch a movie, got a thousand more to go. Stop wasting time on the theme song. Watching everything on Disney seeming like a chore. And since I started singing, they already had it. It's called the the podcast word were tennis shoes. What a terrible name for the show. It's worse than the theme song. Hello and welcome to the podcast War Tennis Shoes, a podcast where we watch and rank all 1764 movies on Disney Plus. I'm Sean, I'm here with my co-hosts Bob and Rob, and we have the very standard high-quality show for you. As per usual, Robbie is recording from the middle of the woods, I am sick as a dog, and Bobby is uh, recording from his echoey empty mansion. Yeah. You can expect the same high-quality audio you always get from us three professionals. How are you doing, Bobby? I'm doing... Pretty good. It's lonely and it's echoey, but I'm with my two best friends now, so life is good. Aww. Like that. Yeah. Rob, how are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm uh, recording from the woods again. This time, not in a uh, warm-up shack uh, at the top of a mountain, uh, just in the camper. Although, uh, I know you'll hate it. I I have a nice squeaky table here, so I'm going to do my best not to put any pressure on the table. You say that now, but you've just only assured, yeah, that's what I was thinking. (laughs) Robbie, this is a family-friendly podcast. We're talking about the Muppets. Please, tone down the squeaking. All right. How you doing, Sean? Yeah. I am... You're sick as a dog? Or as Ralph would say, I'm sick as a dog. If I wasn't sick, that would have been a good impression, but I'm sick, so it's not a good impression. I don't know. I think it adds to it. You sound more like Ralph just when you talk. All right, then. (laughs) Speaking of Ralph, today... We are talking about the great Muppet caper. That's right. We are jumping straight to the second Muppet movie. Some might say the lesser of the first two Muppet movies, but we'll see. I think it's still a pretty good time. It's directed by Jim Henson. Now, we usually start this with a little background talking about how all the history of Walt Disney. How did the movie come to be? How did they get it into production? But this movie wasn't produced by Walt Disney. It's our first non-Walt really? Disney production. It's now owned by Walt Disney, just like everything else in the world, <laughs> because they purchased the Muppets and all of the IP relating to the Muppets that was held by the Jim Henson Company in around 2004. Mm. And so that included the Muppet television series, the first Muppet movie, and the great Muppet caper. But it doesn't actually include Muppets Take Manhattan, the third movie, which I haven't seen. And I was hoping maybe we could get to that too. But apparently that was financed and distributed by Sony. It's not even on Disney+. Plus. So Really? Curses, I say to that. Great Muppet Caper was written by Jerry Jewell and three other guys. Jerry Jewell wrote... On every single Muppet production, 
up until Muppets from Space. It uh, has the main Muppet performers. We all know Jim Henson, Frank Oz, Dave Goals. Music by Joe Raposo. So in the first Muppet movie, the music was co-written by Paul Williams. Paul Williams was a guest on an episode of The Muppet Show. Paul Williams came back to do the music for Muppet Christmas Carol. He didn't do the music for Great Muppet Caper. The music was done by Joe Raposo, who was one of the main composers for Sesame Street. Joe Raposo did the theme song for Sesame Street. He wrote Being Green. It ain't easy being green. He wrote C is for Cookie. He wrote Ad Kadefka Zhikomanopakurixes, one of my favorite songs. What did you just say? Ad Kadefka Zhikomanopakurixes. <laughs> he also wrote the song Sing. Which, I don't know if you know what that is offhand. It's a Sesame Street song. Sing, sing a song, sing out loud, sing out strong. That, he wrote that. It then became a top ten hit for the Carpenters, who covered the Sesame Street song. Really? That just, as a fact of history, blows my yeah, mind. That makes no sense. Because it would be like if, if Imagine Dragons, like, <laughs> covered a song from Bluey, and it went to, like, number four. Like a song about sharing or something. <laughs> At any rate, Joe Raposo did the songs for this movie. So, Bobby, how does this movie start? This movie opens up with Kermit the Frog, Fozzie Bear, and Gonzo the Great whatever floating through the sky in a hot air balloon. Nope, it doesn't. It starts with Animal being the MGM lion. Well, no, it doesn't, Robbie. Technically, it starts with the opening Jim Henson Productions logo. <laughs> so, <Fine>. there. Fine. <laughs> Fine, you win. But okay, no, I, I do love animals. Somewhere in the bowels of VHS recorded videos from the high school we went to, fun fact, all three of us were once in a production of Grease together. Um, one of the directors of the play who was <laughs> filming it came up to me before he filmed a production and said, hey, tonight when I film you, I want you to play like animal. So I did, and he zoomed in on me. So somewhere out there, 20 years ago, almost 20 years ago, there's footage of me playing the drums in a production of Grease pretending that I am Animal. So there is my tie-in to this film. What did you do to pretend that you were Animal? When we... So this was when you were Johnny Casino, and it was during the high school hop. It wasn't during the actual production of it, but instead of, like, doing usual drum rollout, I just started doing blast beats. Like, I was in a death metal band and hitting the cymbals as fast as I could, yelling and screaming. Were you, were you like, Animal yelling the name of the song? High school hop! <laughs> High school hop! Basically. <laughs> you know, if you're a grindcore fan, it's just like my entire life anyway. So I was like, yeah, sure, I can do that in my sleep. Um, So past the Animal MGM logo opening, which is very delightful. Then you get Gonzo the Great whatever, Fozzie Bear, and Kermit the Frog flying through the sky in a higher balloon. Now, I can't remember which is mentioned first, if it's either he hears the overture and isn't sure what it is, or if he's afraid of the title screen coming to get them. But you're introduced to the fact that the three main Muppets are aware of the fact that, yes, this is indeed our second movie. There's nothing to be afraid of, Fozzie. This is just the title of the movie coming into the sky, and these are the opening credits. And to me, you get in this scene, which I think is the peak of fourth wall meta-breaking comedy, where partway through the credits, Fozzie seems bored by them, and he says, Kermit, nobody actually reads these, do they? <laughs> and Kermit says, oh yeah, sure, these people have families. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and as someone who has been in enough independent films and loves movies, I can tell you, nobody gives a fuck about the credits. <laughs> I think my favorite line was, right before the final credit, Fozzie goes, is it done yet? Are we finally done? And Kermit goes, ah, 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 ah. And then the Jim Henson <laughs> credit goes up, yeah. and then Kermit goes, yeah. now we're done. <laughs> I, I, I mean, and it's funny, because we'll get into this a bit later on, but all of the reviews you sent and things I looked up from, like, major critics really seemed to pan this movie for the fact that it kept breaking the fourth wall. 
And to me, that was what I loved about this movie. Every time they yeah. did that, it got a genuine laugh out of me. Well, I kind of want to talk about a few of those reviews later on when we uh, get further into the movie. Because they kind of make no sense to me. Like, I read a few, like the old Washington Post, the Roger Ebert reviews. And it kind of feels like none of these people have ever even heard of the Muppets before. Like, they say they have. They're like, oh, this isn't the Muppets I remember. But then when they describe it, there's like, it's all fourth wall breaking. And suddenly they're playing new characters. It's like, that's what the Muppets always are. What are you talking about? So... I'm a little perplexed by the critical response to this. I have to agree with that. The other thing that jumped out at me is that both this movie and the first Muppet movie start in the clouds. The first one is obviously starting on a rainbow and you hear Kermit start singing the rainbow connection. And then on a like a helicopter shot slowly goes towards a marsh and then it goes down into the marsh where you get Kermit singing. This one has a very similar beginning, although they're in a hot air balloon. You know, it's an interesting motif because it's like dropping them into the movie, you know? Like they've come from somewhere else and they're, they're taking a hot air balloon into a movie. Like it's Oz almost, you know? Um, like it's a different land where they're different people now and they get to dress up as somebody else. I, I thought it was an interesting motif. It, it put us in the, the right frame of mind, I think. Well, felt. yeah, like they're they're... They're they're playing different characters, right? Then I mean they're playing the same character names Kermit the Frog, but they're mm-hmm. reporters opposed to you know Muppets putting on like their Muppet show, right? It's kind of kind of the same as Muppet Christmas Carol, where they're playing like Bob Cratchit and whatnot. They land the balloon in the middle of a city street. They crash the balloon. Yeah. <laughs> And Gonzo says, what a great opening to the movie. And then they break the fourth wall and Kermit turns to the audience and says, hey, P.S., just so you know, we're playing different characters in this movie. We're crack reporters. And then a costume lady walks in front of the camera and suddenly they're dressed up in in reporter costumes, like classic 1940s reporters. Then they're just like, go with it. But apparently Roger Ebert couldn't. He was like, (laughs) whoa, whoa, whoa. Back up, people. Back up. I can accept a talking frog, but there's too many layers here. There are just too many layers. So, Sean, as someone who's never seen the Muppet movie, the first one, from watching a Muppet caper, right. I uh, I get the impression that maybe the first movie didn't have that big of a budget, or maybe it was a struggle to be made or something, because all I could think of while watching this film was what a flex this movie was. He's like, we got a budget now. And he just, like, put absolutely everything he could possibly have wanted into this movie. Like, even the beginning, they've got the back lot, and it's just, like, full of hundreds of extras and, like, explosions and so much stuff happening. I just was like, okay, he's just flexing the entire film. Yeah, I mean, I think that basically is what what happened there. So, the first Muppet movie was a British production, just like the Muppet TV show. The TV show and the movie were financed by ITV, uh, which is a British financing company. The show ended, the first movie came out, it was a huge success. Jim Henson tried to parlay that into making The Dark Crystal. Uh, He shopped it around to a bunch of different studios, they all passed on The Dark Crystal. He went back to ITV, asked them to finance The Dark Crystal, and ITV said, well, we'll only finance The Dark Crystal if you make a sequel to the Muppet movie first. And he was like, well, are you going to give me more money? And they're like, well, double your budget. And he was like, sold. So yes, this movie had double the budget of the Muppet movie. And I think 
his entire goal making it was just like you said, just to flex and make the most absurd and like amazing puppet movie he possibly could. Yeah, the callback to Kermit riding a bike and they get literally every single Muppet they could possibly ever have riding bikes um, in the in the same shot is is clearly just them being like, you thought that was impressive. Watch this. So they land this balloon in, like you said, a back lot. But the thing about the Muppets, especially the old Jim Henson ones, they really went all out to build the world around the Muppets. And that is what I think is so amazing about these classic Muppet movies and the Muppet TV show. Everything is built to facilitate puppetry. Mm-hmm. The streets are elevated and you can go underneath them because some of the puppeteers need to be literally standing under the streets yeah. to puppet things that are below the streets. Um, all of the buildings are built to facilitate having puppets like leaning out of them or doing stuff with them. Like none of this is on location. Uh, there's lots of shots in this movie where Muppets will be like thrown to the ground. And then there's just a shot of them like crawling around on the ground. And clearly that's not the ground. Like it's elevated above the ground. The puppet tiers are below the ground everything is built but it kind of creates this unrealism where you have to wonder how is this happening like you kind (laughs) of forget that they're puppets because you assume that this is being shot in a park or it's being shot on a bench but like there's no way for puppeteers to be anywhere but it's because it's not being shot in a park it's not being shot on a bench it was built to look like that but it's it's totally fake, right? Specifically, I, I know some of the park bench shots you're talking about. And it's like, you know they're puppets, but you, you you do sit there watching like, how is he having a conversation with this man about a glass slipper? Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> this man? We don't want to spoil the cameo. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so then they sing a song. So we get the first of our Joe Raposo songs. And the song they sing is, Hey, It's a Movie, or something like that, right? Is that the name of the song? Hey, We're in a Movie. Well, they sing a song about how they're doing another movie and it's going to be so great. Because they have a budget this time. Bobby, what'd you think about this sequence? It sets the tone for the whole movie. The song is breaking the fourth wall. The entire song is breaking the fourth wall about how great this is going to be. And the whole point of the song is that while they're singing this song about why, you know, how fun this movie is going to be and how great it's going to be, the plot of the movie is happening behind them. And you're meant to watch yeah. it. And it's and they're not paying attention to the movie. <laughs> <laughs> they're just singing about how great it's going to be and they're missing it. I was going to take this one level higher and say that this is like... Dramatic irony on a Shakespearean level. Yeah, that's right. I'm comparing Jim Henson to Shakespeare. Well, he quotes Shakespeare in this movie. (laughs) Yeah. So Charles Grodin turns up in the movie and announces that he's in the movie because they're all singing, everybody's in this movie. And then Charles Grodin with (laughs) a sinister smile and like a black costume and like a top hat to hide his visage turns towards the camera and goes, and me. In a sinister (laughs) voice. (laughs) He looks so evil. And then he goes and he steals some jewels while the Muppets are too busy singing about how great the movie is going to be that they're not actually paying attention to. And then at the very end, everyone in the street starts dancing behind them And they smile, and Gonzo takes a big picture of them. Sorry. (laughs) Is that still the ringtone from Crank? It is still the ringtone from Crank. Yes, I have not changed my cell phone. How long have you had that on your phone? Uh, Well, since I got my first iPhone. I think it was an iPhone 4. And uh, I have kept the same ringtone since then. What's funny is that I'm pretty sure I know when you added that ringtone. Because we did a play for the Fringe Festival called Artemis Burning. 
And in that play, we needed the character to receive a phone call. And then we started looking for the <laughs> stupidest ringtone that this character could have. We'd yeah. be like, what's the most obnoxious ringtone that this character could have? What ringtone would make this character look like a total fucking asshole? And we found the ringtone from Crank. And we were like, perfect. Only a fucking asshole would have that. And you've had it now for, what, 15 years? <laughs> Something like that, yeah. I haven't changed it. <laughs> wow. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Makes sense. I guess we were right. I guess we were right all along. We did gloss over one quick thing in the intro title that I really liked is that Gonzo just straight gets run over by a car. <laughs> and it's totally fine. It's because he loves it. Well, he, he said he wants to fall out of the... He wanted to jump out of the hot air balloon, and then he gets his wish when they fly to London. He's basically Pinhead from Hellraiser. <laughs> he just desires pain. That's just his entire character. So after this big song and dance, Gonzo takes a picture of them, and then it it smash cuts to this picture being on the front page of the newspaper. (laughs) And the front page headline says, Identical twins start working at the Chronicle. (laughs) Now, there's two things about this that jumped out at me as absolutely hilarious. The first is that on the front page of the newspaper, you can see all the people behind them doing the dance routine, which means the musical happened in the world of the movie. (laughs) Like, that was diegetic. Yep. In reality, these people actually started doing a choreographed dance routine set to the lyrics being sung by these characters, which to me is so amazing that I think that should be on the front page of the newspaper. (laughs) (laughs) A bunch of people in the middle of the street start doing amazing choreographed routine out of nowhere. Yes, please. Front page. The second thing is that it introduces one of the funniest funniest running gags in... uh, the movie and that is that Fozzie Bear and Kermit <laughs> are playing identical twins which it's so good it's so funny because <laughs> the movie acknowledges that these are characters one's a bear and one's a frog their editor starts arguing with them he's like how can you be identical twins you don't even look the same and then Kermit says well that's because Fozzie's not wearing his hat And Fozzie puts on his hat, and the editor goes, oh, no, I see it. (laughs) Speaking of which, I'd like to know who cleared that photo for the newspaper. Like, the editor didn't see that? Did they single-handedly, like, overrule his decision? He came into work, and they had just put it on the front page? I thought the same thing. I was like, clearly, this man is the the chief editor, the head editor. He would have had final say on the newspaper, but... uh... Yeah, they just snuck it by him. I like the thing about this, them being identical twins joke, was the photograph of Fozzie and Kermit's dad was one of the funniest fucking things I've ever seen in my life. (laughs) What was it? It was so quick. What was it? Because it's a puppet that they've just combined all the characteristics of Fozzie and Kermit. (laughs) Yeah, he's he's a green bear wearing the same hat with the black eyes of a frog. (laughs) It's such a quick flash of the photo. Because the editor's like, the only reason I hired you was because I was such good friends with your father. And then there's a photo of the editor with his arms around this grotesque like half bear half frog creature like grinning like an idiot so they get fired and in response they say well listen we're gonna make up for this we're gonna find the person who stole the jewels which doesn't seem to me like it's their job like they don't seem to understand what reporters do first of all they missed the story and then in response they're like okay well we'll become detectives we will solve the crime i guess investigative journalists That's not really how they pitch it, though. They're like, we're going (laughs) to go to London and find the diamonds. It's like, who the fuck do you think you are? Nicolas Cage? What is this? (laughs) So they get on a plane to go to London. And then the joke is, is that they are in the luggage compartment underneath the plane. 
and Gonzo is watching like a Western movie in there somehow. <laughs> I imagine he's one of those like portable TVs, maybe. <laughs> well, you can hear it. He's like, quiet, guys. I'm trying to watch the movie. And it sounds like it's like a John Wayne. It's like Stagecoach or something <laughs> that he's watching in there. Yeah. And like his little like dog carrier. It's pretty funny, actually. Um, I mean, now we're getting out of Torch Talk. This is more like shipping receiving world uh, that I work in now. Um, I did appreciate that. The Muppets had proper luggage tags on their luggage. And they're marked frog, bear, whatever. whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of like all the movies to pay attention to like shipping, receiving details. There's like a fucking great Muppet caper. And that was Shooting the Ship with Bobby. <laughs> all right. Um, uh, so they get to London and Kermit says, great, we're finally in England. Well, there, we made, the plane's going to land. Yeah, we got to land. That's right. And then the uh, steward or the... What would you call him? Chairman of the luggage? I don't think it's a real job. Baggage handler? Baggage handler on the plane. He comes down and he says, no, 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 this plane's landing in Italy. You're landing in England. And then they just open up the door and throw them out of the plane. And then they land in a pond in the middle of rural suburb of London, it looks like. And uh, there's a British guy there. He says, welcome to this sceptered isle. <laughs> and I found it funny that, like, the introduction to England is like, oh, this guy's got to quote Shakespeare. <laughs> That's how you know it's England. They got to start talking they're, Shakespeare. They're, they're playing to an American audience, right? So they're like, what's what's British? What's English? Shakespeare. It's a weird movie because it's shot in England because it's financed by an English company. But all of the actors and creative team are Americans. There's nary a... British accent to be heard anywhere. It's it's a very strange English What's movie. What's the eagle's name again? Oh, Sam the Eagle? Why am I here? <laughs> yeah. But he says, I'm proud to be an American. And I'm like, yeah, all these Muppets are are American, but they all live in this happy hotel, happiness hotel in London. I don't think it's supposed to make any sense. The writers were given the task of stitching together a series of extravagant puppet Sean, like Sean, sequences this is um tom cruise and christopher mccory doing mission impossible this is this is jim henson doing a mission impossible movie where he just shoots like a, a busby berkeley musical number and he's like we'll figure out a way to make it make sense yeah we'll figure we'll, it out we'll figure it out everyone's swimming and dancing choreographed routine we'll figure and out they a way. have the added benefit of that the puppet's lips don't really move so they can just you know make them move and then record all the extra dialogue in post they don't have to do the over-the-shoulder shot to add all the uh, ADR in. Little known fact, the same is true of Tom Cruise. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, before we started recording, Bobby said to me, uh, you know, we really have to stop doing these episodes on good movies because we have fewer things to say about them. All we're going to talk about is just that we enjoyed certain aspects of it. It won't be as funny. And maybe that's true. So I apologize in advance to our listeners, but we're going to try our best. I am noticing this current trend of we're just finding other movies to talk shit on while we say how much we love this. <laughs> <laughs> they get in, uh, directions to the cheapest hotel in London, and there are three options for hotels that don't cost anything are a bus stop, the banks of the river, or the Happiness Hotel. And so they say, well, the Happiness Hotel sounds pretty good. So they go there, and it's just a hotel filled with Muppets. Um, and getting back to Robbie's comments about this just going for broke and just being a splurge of money, I really loved this set. It's like two stories there's puppets everywhere. The camera will sometimes pan up from the ground floor up into like a second story through like a mezzanine area. And all these puppets are looking down from the second floor. It's really great. Like it just looks dynamic. And in this hotel, they do a lot of sequences where they do 
long shot, like long steady cam shots that like follow puppets and like whip pan from one puppet to another as things are just being thrown around. You, I can't imagine the choreography it takes to kind of get some of these sequences correct. It's really amazing. It, it just shows the passion that goes into the puppetry in this movie. I think. Well, and as you said, like the way the the way this set is designed to have people hiding under stairs underneath rafters like behind the walls like just knowing all the work that went into it just to make it look like a hotel yeah. with that's full of and muppets and then they drive a car through it <laughs> and destroy the whole thing and it looks it looks yeah, great it's fantastic like the as you said the amount of work and planning they went into just to then have a car drive through it and they actually hold the shot as you said and uh it goes into the kitchen and you could see where the kitchen was too so it wasn't just like there's nothing behind there they actually built sets behind <laughs> the walls too um most of the sets in this were as you said pretty damn well uh crafted they were really nice well they're just throwing around that itv money yeah well the, what's funny is that shortly after this movie came out itv filed for bankruptcy <laughs> um, oh, no. Because it wasn't nearly as successful as the first Muppet movie. It, uh, yeah, got kind of a more mixed response. Luckily, Jim Henson already had his cash and he was already filming Dark Crystal. So he was laughing to the bank. But uh, ITV, not so much. So, Robbie, what happens next? Then they go to their room uh, and they said they got to get some rest before bed, uh, before they go interview. What's the what's the lead character's name? Um, Lady Halliday. Lady Halliday. So speaking of Lady Halliday, we never mentioned it, but she's played by Diana Rigg, who uh, had a very prominent, long and successful career. She was James Bond's wife on on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Uh, she was in the 90s Avengers television series. Or no, wait, that's before the 90s. The movie yeah. was the 90s. The TV series was a lot before the, like the 60s. <laughs> the Sean Connery, Uma Thurman no, show. No, no, The TV series that was based on. And then she also played uh, the Tyrell matriarch in Game of Thrones. She plays Lady Halliday, who's a fashion designer, a very wealthy and successful fashion designer because she apparently owns all the diamonds. She has three different sets of diamonds stolen in this movie. <laughs> so she's British. Her brother is played by Charles Grodin, who's an American, and it's never addressed, <laughs> well, it's right? it's like Kermit and Fozzie being twins. It's just... <laughs> yeah. You just take exactly. it. Who cares? They're actors. And then when they arrive together at the restaurant later on, and he's like dancing along, I was like, are they dating? Like, why <laughs> is she with him? I didn't actually put it together. That was her brother because I'd forgotten his name. She has a great line uh, in her introduction where she gives the backstory of her losing her diamonds yes. and what could possibly happen when someone says, what are you talking about? She's like, oh, don't mind me. It's just plot exposition. <laughs> yeah, that's Miss Piggy. So Miss Piggy comes into her office because Miss Piggy is hoping to break into the fashion industry, as she always is. And Lady Halliday tells her, you may or may not be okay to be a model, but uh, I'm only going to hire you as a receptionist. And while she's doing this, she explains to Miss Piggy that she works with her brother, who is a uh, useless parasite. Irresponsible parasite. Irresponsible parasite, which is also his official title. <laughs> On this door in his office. <laughs> there is a weird part here that didn't make a lot of sense to me, because she explains how her brother is this, obviously, the villain. And then we cut to outside of her office, and we see someone go up to her brother's office. They lean in the door, but they don't show you her brother. So the camera stays outside in the hallway, and you just see someone lean into the office and say, Mr. Halliday, did you order this box of flowered socks? 
And then throughout the movie, every time his character is introduced, the camera starts on his flowered socks and then like goes up. Yeah. I'm wondering, was there a point where this movie had like a twist in it where perhaps there was a discarded plot line where they had maybe kept it a mystery that Charles Grodin was the same person as her brother? And the fact that he's always wearing these flowered socks might have been the giveaway of it or might have been where the audience goes, oh, he's the brother because he's wearing the flowered socks. Because otherwise, I don't know why that's a thing. Like it just it seems like it's yeah, it draws attention to itself, but it doesn't matter because the first time Charles Grodin is essentially introduced, they introduce him as Nikki Halliday. This is the brother. I don't know what the whole flowered socks thing is about. But at any rate, it was a little odd. Lady Halliday leaves. And Kermit comes in to interview Lady Halliday to get information about the stolen jewels so that they can find the jewel thief. And he finds Miss Piggy in the office. And just like always, Miss Piggy falls instantly in love with Kermit. And Kermit falls instantly in love with Miss Piggy. But unfortunately, he believes that she's Lady Halliday. And she lets him believe that. And so they set up a date to have their interview over dinner. And he decides he's going to pick her up. And she doesn't want him to go to whatever place she actually lives at. So they make up an address on Highbrow Street. 17 Highbrow Street is where he's going to pick her up. Which turns out to be an actual street. Because Miss Piggy goes there to try to pretend that she actually lives there. (laughs) Which brings me to the funniest sequence in the entire movie, in my opinion. Because it's just this 10 minute long Monty Python sketch. Yeah. Starring John Cleese. It really feels like it came out of Meeting of Life. Because it's John Cleese... And I am apologize, I don't know the name of the actress who plays his wife, uh, are a couple, a very wealthy aristocratic couple in London who apparently have not left the house in years. Twelve years. <laughs> and they're so disassociated from life that Miss Piggy is breaking into their home. And John Cleese's wife is going, what's that, dear? And John Cleese goes, it's a pig. He's climbing up the side of the house. Oh. That's strange. And then they just kind of let it happen and just watch the whole thing go on. And uh, I thought it was hilarious. It's like 10 minutes, though. It's a huge chunk of the movie. It's just devoted to this Monty Python sketch. I mean, I, I do have a soft spot for John Cleese. I always liked when he pops up in things. One of the things that was that threw me off a little bit, though, is that John Cleese has been super old for so long <laughs> that it was odd <laughs> yeah. to see them age him up. Because he clearly had makeup on to look older because they had like grayed his hair. And I was like, why would you make John Cleese look older? He's already 120 years old. In 1981, (laughs) I guess he was a bit younger. And then uh, Miss Piggy breaks the fourth wall too as she's climbing. She says, uh, next time I'm getting a stunt double. Half the dialogue (laughs) in the movie is just the Muppets breaking the fourth wall. And I loved it every single time. (laughs) I didn't actually realize how much they did that. I, I, you know, I only watched a few episodes of the Muppet show when it, when we got Disney plus the, the show is actually them putting on the show. If that makes any sense. Yeah. Right. It's the show behind the show, but yeah, they're just talking to camera the whole time. Uh, I never actually realized that because my, my main introduction to the Muppets was Sesame street, right? Where it's like a, you know, edutainment program for kids. Mm -hmm. So they are just addressing the camera, but it's not really like they're addressing the camera. They're just talking to the audience. Whereas this, it's very self-referential and it's kind of cool. Well, uh, Jim Henson and the Muppets, they really had an origin in kind of the old vaudeville sketch comedy style material. Jim Henson started it in the late 50s. He did a show called Sam and Friends, 
which was a regional show that only aired in Washington, D.C., but it was like an early version of The Muppets with sketch comedy with puppets. This got him some attention where he basically started doing spots on talk shows. He would show up on like The Tonight Show or The Ed Sullivan Show. With Kermit? <laughs> with uh, Usually not Kermit, but actually Ralph, I think, was often oh, yeah. one of the characters that would show up. And they would do comedy routines or songs, and a lot of it was just, like, banter. Ralph was a reoccurring character on The Jimmy Dean Show, which was, like, a, a comedy talk show at the time. And that got him attention, where he started producing coffee commercials and Frito-Lays commercials using The Muppets. <laughs> And he did that for like six years. You know, we have this idea of like, you create this artistic creation, it gets attention, and then you sell out, so to speak, quote unquote, and like use that piece of art to market commercials or like be in a commercial or something. Oh, you've sold out. But Jim Henson started on commercials. The Muppets started selling coffee and Frito-Lays and cookies literally cookies cookie monster started in a cookie commercial Are you serious before he was mm. a sesame street character yes that's that's why he eats all those cookies is because he was getting paid to eat the cookies for a commercial because yes because he was a <laughs> spokesman for cookies Jesus. that's how he got addicted to cookies his life went off the rails once he got that gig oh man i did not know that he had to have an intervention on sesame street all those years later <laughs> <laughs> did he have diabetes? No, he actually is, isn't. He like the veggie monster now. Like, didn't he? Are you serious? He stopped eating cookies. Oh wow! All right. And so that was basically his entire thing through the '60s until in the late '60s, I think in 1969, when Sesame Street hired the Jim Henson Company to do all the puppetry for that show. Then he he dropped all the commercial stuff because that was a reoccurring gig that could actually finance everything they were doing. I think after about four or five years on Sesame Street. Frank Oz and Jim Henson and kind of the creative team were really worried that they were being typecast as children's entertainers. And so in the mid 70s, there was this weird period where they <laughs> deliberately went out of their way to like make the Muppets super adult. I don't know if you ever saw the first season of Saturday Night Live, but the Muppets are on Saturday Night Live. Really? They are members of the Not Ready for Primetime cast. That's hilarious. Yeah. Wow. So it's like... Kermit the Frog and Bill Murray. It's like Dan Aykroyd and Chevy Chase and the Muppets. It's like they're part of the cast. And they had a sketch every single episode. Lorraine Newman. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> David Spade. Cookie Monster. <laughs> Special musical guest. Animal. I love Dave Pardo. Yeah, and uh, so the Muppets were on Saturday Night Live, but they weren't like Kermit and Miss Piggy, actually. They were these, like, alien puppets that were created specifically for Saturday Night Live. They were terrible. Uh, as someone who really likes the Muppets, I've seen some of those sketches. Not a single one of them is funny. Mm. Uh, probably because they weren't written by Jerry Jewell. They were written by the Saturday Night Live writers, and they just mm, didn't yeah. know what they were doing with these puppets. And uh, apparently the Saturday Night Live, Saturday Night Live, the SNL writers uh, hated it. They were like, this is the dumbest thing. Why do we have Sesame Street on this show? Um, <laughs> so it didn't last very long. Yeah. It was only in the first season. Have you guys seen, um, speaking of like adult Muppets, what's the murder, that murder show? Rizzo that they... the Rats! <laughs> anyway, go on. <laughs> that was a good one, yeah. Um, <laughs> what was the the... Murderville or something? No. What was the show that they that, that uh, Brian Henson made like five years ago with Melissa McCarthy? Puppets. No, um, not Puppets Who Kill. 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Murder in Puppetville, something about that. Yeah. It was basically um, Meet the Feebles. It was just, it was Meet the Feebles, but not yeah. Peter Jackson. Which means there's probably way less penises in the Brian Henson show. I don't know. I haven't seen it. <laughs> Apparently know. there was a lot of penises in it. Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> I really liked Meet the Feebles. It doesn't necessarily translate like they were hoping, you know? Like, I mean, obviously the juxtaposition of seeing Muppets do vulgar things, right, is what they were going for. Um, and I get what they're doing at SNL, but it, I guess there's just too many people that like grew up with Sesame Street and those are kind of sacred, you know? Well, there's, um, there's that off-Broadway musical Avenue Q, but that was a parody that wasn't actually yeah. the Muppets and that was quite successful. And I think, I mean, I, I can't speak to how well some of the songs have aged now, but I think the idea of like, well, we'll just do like a mu- parody of the Muppets, which is another weird level of meta is like the Muppets are a parody of like everything around them. Yeah. But that, that, that worked on that level because that's not, I think that's maybe what it is, is that you're, you have someone who's parodying the Muppets rather than like the Muppets actually doing it themselves. Yeah. You don't want to watch Kermit do heroin, you know, like no matter how funny you think it'll be. <laughs> okay. No, that being said, um, there is a really funny video of someone puppeteering Kermit covering Elliot Smith's needle in the hay on YouTube. And it's really funny because it's just played straight. And like, is it someone doing a Kermit impression? Like they're singing needle in the hay? Yeah. Like the, the guy's singing needle in the hay as Kermit the frog as like they puppet Kermit. And it's done like, you know, they're, they're, it's filmed like an actual music video. I, uh, a funny story behind that. The only reason we found that was because I was in an acting class and the instructor said, oh, hey, here's this video. I think you guys should like watch this to like prep for your scene. And he accidentally sent us that. <laughs> <laughs> we we're like i don't think this video was right however i love it and he was like oh yeah oops definitely not the right video sorry guys just uh finishing off my discussion of the mid-70s attempt to adultify the muppets um in addition to being on saturday night live jim henson also pitched a pilot for the muppet show to nbc and they recorded and filmed it and it was aired and the name of it was the muppet show colon Sex and Violence. What? <laughs> that was the what? name of the NBC pilot for The Muppet Show. <laughs> like, can you, <laughs> can you still get that pilot? Like, the, It's I, on YouTube, parts of it. I don't know if the whole thing, but you can look on YouTube. Like the title? <laughs> I'm fairly certain that the whole pitch for it was... We're going to do the Muppet Show. Well, isn't that the Sesame Street kid stuff? Yes, but this is going to have sex and violence. What's it called? (laughs) Sex and violence. (laughs) Anyway, it didn't get picked up and they had to go to England. Yeah. Understand. Where eventually they ended up making the great Muppet caper. Now. Back to it. Nice segue. Bobby, where are we? I've already forgotten. Okay, so um, Piggy has successfully broken into John Cleese's house. Um. I think I think I looked it up while you were talking. Joan Sanderson, I think, is the actress's okay. name, and she did a bit. She did a bit on Faulty Towers, where she was in an episode of Faulty Towers. So this is almost like a oh, little throwback. Oh, nice, to, yeah, yeah. Faulty Towers might not have happened by this point, actually, but I, but yeah, she's in an 81? episode of it. Pretty sure Faulty Towers had happened by eighty-one, didn't? Wasn't it in the seventies? Yeah, I think you're right. But I like this whole scene of them. Miss Piggy breaking into the house and then just discussing it. Like, they don't really do much of anything about it. And they're commenting on it as if they're watching the film, because it is a film. It's just so weird. <laughs> and like you say, it's, it's it, you know, it, it, it plays like a Monty Python sketch. And then Kermit rings the doorbell. And then Miss Piggy just 
comes out and says, I'll get it. She's trying to hide, but she just comes out and says, I'll get it. And they're just like, oh, okay. Um, she brings Kermit into the house and John Cleese chases them through the house with a walking stick or a golf club or something. No, it's a uh, fire poker. Fire poker, of course. He's British. It's a fire poker. Yeah. Into the back of a broom closet. And when she asks why they're there, Miss Piggy says she needs a dinner recommendation. Yeah. Because John Cleese politely puts down the fire poker and recommends the restaurants that come to mind for him. Which again is so Monty Python. You know, this robber has broken broken into your house john cleese confronts them what are you doing in here looking for a dinner recommendation oh well you can go to this place no, he did that this before place. though like he, he says when he opens up the closet door he immediately puts the poker down and goes oh i'm sorry like apologizes to them for catching them in the closet yeah he's like i, I didn't know there was anyone in here <laughs> What's the name of the club? I, the name escapes me. The club they end up going to. It's basically like the Copacabana. I don't know. Um, but he says, well, it's really more of a supper club. And they're like, great, we'll take that one. He leaves. And then the wife says, what do they want? Like, oh, they wanted recommendations. I said they should go to this place. She's well, that's really more of a supper club. <laughs> they have such a sad relationship. <laughs> so they go out for dinner. Now, we did skip. There was a musical number as Kermit was getting ready for this date back at the uh, Happiness Hotel. The, the song isn't particularly memorable, I don't think. Um, I do like some of the choreography of the routine. One of the things that I liked, again, it just kind of goes to the detail that they put into the puppetry, is Kermit spends a lot of time jumping around this room as he's putting on his little tux and he's getting ready for this date. And Fozzie is jumping around with him and singing the song. And there's mirrors in the room. There's like four or five mirrors for some reason in this room. And Gonzo is doing shit and you can always see it in the mirror on purpose like it's like choreographed puppetry stuff and it's just like the amount of time and detail like to get another puppeteer on the other side of the room operating on a whole different tier and not seeing anybody out of place like never seeing any of the puppeteers in any of these mirrors never seeing any of the sticks or the wires that they're using and they're moving the camera around a lot. It all just kind of feels like Jim Henson going in and saying, how can we make this as hard as possible? And then doing it. And I kind of love it. It's just a flex, man. Yeah. The whole movie is a flex. A lot of this stuff you kind of forget, but some of the most amazing stuff is just going into something and saying, how do we make this as hard as possible? And then somehow doing it. Um, so they go on this date, they go to the Copacabana, and finally we get Charles Grodin. He finally shows up, and he is playing it as if he's high on cocaine. <laughs> I think that has to be it. Yeah. I think the story premise has to be he's doing some sort of a Bruce Wayne thing where he's, you know, an evil jewel thief and he's trying to convince people that he's such an idiot. He couldn't possibly be the jewel thief. So he's putting on a facade sometimes because when nobody's looking, he stops doing his weird cocaine dance and then like hunches over and like creeps away in a sinister yeah, way. He does do the cat burglar sneak away a few times. Charles Grodin is kind of going all out on this. He's just he's just making a choice and he's going for it. Uh-huh, yeah. He's at 11. Cocaine Grodin is, is fun in this movie. I, for me, that's why this film was so enjoyable, because you can tell everybody there is having a good time. Yeah, they all wanted to be there. It's interesting that you put it like that, because Muppets has always been built on kind of guest stars, cameos. And I think the difference between some of these great older Muppet stuff and some of the less great newer stuff is that in a lot of these newer Disney productions with the Muppets, they get these guest stars in, but it doesn't feel like the guest stars are there because they're having a good time being in this Muppet movie. It feels like they're there because they enjoyed watching an older Muppet movie, and now they're here in this one. 
But this one isn't as good. <laughs> and nobody really likes the fact that they're in this one. They wish they were in the older one. Yeah, they're just there for nostalgia purposes. They're like, oh yeah, we gotta do a Muppet. It'll be good for my career. We'll do a Muppet show. Yeah, like they show up because they remember how good the Muppets are. Whereas in this movie, it feels like everyone's there because they're like, this is awesome. Yeah. We get another huge song and dance routine. Kermit and Piggy do a dance number. It's got some choreographed Piggy tap dancing. I did like a shot where Piggy jumps on the table the camera does a whip pan yeah. from, like, Piggy's face down to, like, Piggy's legs that start tap dancing. There's obviously something in between there. You know, the puppet itself isn't tap dancing. It was a cut? I'm, it could be a hidden cut. It could just be a whip pan that, like, hides the fact that it's panning down quite far yeah. to, like, a totally different apparatus. Again, just a flex. Yeah. It looks quite good, though. Yeah. You know? The other thing I really liked that it starts showing up all the time, there's a whole lot of diffraction spikes which are the x cross lens flares mm. that anytime you see something bright it shines out with basically a cross like two perpendicular lines that cross over one another and oftentimes they'll do it like when piggy first sees kermit they catch the light in her eye and in fact they do it in camera and you know they do it in camera because they move the puppet it catches the light in her eye you get a diffraction spike where you get this x lens flare that blows out the camera and then they only got it once because they rock the footage back and forth. <laughs> you can see them move the frames back and forth in order to get it to like glint and glimmer like you would see with like a glimmering uh, lens flare. But he really likes those. And the thing that's interesting about them is that you don't see them in a lot of movies because you have to purposefully have a bad aperture to get that kind of lens flare. To get that kind of diffraction spike you need to have an aperture that only has like four blades to mm. it. So usually apertures have like a lot of blades. And so when they open and close, they open and close kind of like a circle. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. When you get a lens flare, you get like the bokeh that are like circles around a light or like a series of circles, like because the light is bouncing around inside the lens. Um, to get those like X lens flares, the the light is bending around like four blades in like a diamond shape. Um, so they purposefully had to make a shitty aperture <laughs> in order to get that, which I find interesting because it's like that's what he wanted it to look like. I want a diamond lens flare coming off of every fucking thing. Um, well, the movie's about diamonds. Yeah. Yeah, it's probably it. God damn it. He did what he wanted to do. <laughs> <laughs> he really did what he wanted to do. So uh, what happens next, Bobby? Um, so just before the dance number happens in the supper club, you have that little bit of Kermit realizes he can't afford anything in this restaurant. And Gonzo says, don't worry about it. I got this covered. And he runs around the restaurant taking candid photos of people eating, saying all he needs is their address and $10 and he will send them a proof. And of course, the first one you get is Jim Henson. He yep. is the first person Gonzo takes a photo of, which... You kind of knew was coming, but it's just so nice to see. Yeah. And while the dance is going on, Gonzo's snapping photos of everybody in the restaurant, which is what's going to lead to the point of... Including uh, including an adulterer? Adulterer, yeah. Which, as you said, this is like the more adult the more adult moment of the Muppets, where he says, do you want a photo of you and, my wife, of you and your wife? Like, my wife isn't feeling well. Like, well, she seems okay to me. Like, my wife's at home. And Gonzo, <laughs> like, kind of spikes the camera and is like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Right at the end of the dance number, the lights go out. Charles Grodin steals the necklace off of his sister and gives it to three of the models. Lady Halliday's three models are working with Charles Grodin yeah. um, to steal these diamonds. 
which doesn't make any fucking sense. I don't know why any of these people do anything, but whatever. Lady Lady Halliday like said though I looked like a giraffe. Like I think that's the only motivation. <laughs> She's mean to them, so they're stealing all of her diamonds. I think that's the only motivation. All right, fair this enough. This is I think it's also at the supper club too. This is where um her brother first notices Miss Piggy and falls in love with her. Yeah, immediately. <laughs> immediately. <laughs> oh, yeah. So this is where Charles Croden first sees Miss Piggy and does immediately fall in love Did with her. Did you just say Charles um, Croden? <laughs> <laughs> He's sick. Cut him a break. Charles <laughs> uh, <laughs> Croden is what it's going to be called now. <laughs> Listen, I got a problem with my consonants, okay? <laughs> yes. So, Charlie. <laughs> I might have had one too many no boats on Sunday. <laughs> All right, well, this is their fault. No, no, no. Robbie, if you want to keep the sponsorship, you can't ever have too many. But know your limit and play within it. I do love how committed the Muppets are to their dumb jokes. Like, just the fact that the biggest diamond is called the baseball diamond. Like, it's just the dumbest yep. joke. <laughs> it's just the worst pun. And they're just like, yeah. go with it. What happens next, Bobby? He falls in love with Miss Piggy. There is a... One of the models pulls the power to the club. But Gonzo is taking photos of everybody as it is happening. The lights go out. He steals the necklace from his sister. The lights go back on. And suddenly her brother is like, who stole? Who stole? Who could it have been? But he's passed it off to one of the models. She's passed it off to another. And, and Charles Grodin is just whining that he has ketchup on his shirt. He's like, oh, I got ketchup on my shirt. Well, he's pulling a Bruce Wayne. He's trying to pretend like he's too much of a doofus to be a diamond thief. He's laying on real thick there. He's at 11. We've already discussed this. Jarly goes to 11, okay? (laughs) Sorry. Yeah, sorry. I mispronounced his name there. My apologies. My apologies (laughs) to Mr. (laughs) What you call him? Jarly. (laughs) Jarly. Jarly. <laughs> Mr. Grodin. <laughs> they go back to the Happiness Hotel and Miss Miss Piggy runs away. Miss Piggy runs away because you find out that Lady Halliday's jewels have been stolen. Kermit the Frog looks up and realizes Miss Piggy is not Lady Halliday. That she has been lying the whole time. She is in fact a pig. And she leaves behind a glass slipper. The shot of Miss Piggy leaving the club is is shot from above and I'm fairly certain that's just a person in a Miss Piggy costume. That comes up a couple times in this movie. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I haven't really seen that in other Muppet productions, I don't think. But in this one, they they built a like a full-bodied Miss Piggy suit, and they're like, we're going to use this three times because we're going to get our money out of it. Boy, do they use it. Yeah. I, I have that exact note. I said they, they, they get their money out of that. Frank Frank Oz had to put it on, and he was like, listen, you're shooting all three of these in a row because I'm only wearing this once. Wait, Frank Oz, you think he was the puppeteer in the suit? Hundred, yeah, no. Why would Frank Oz off the diving board, Frank Oz in the evil cable suit, 100%. That's too good. He's riding the motorbike. <laughs> Jim, does this really have to be and action? Maybe that's why they put the line in. Next time I'm getting a stunt double, it's actually him doing it. But staying in character because he's that much of a professional. Yep. 
is this where and I can't I can't do you get the glass slipper talk first or the photo developing first? I can't I think remember. the photo developing is the first developing because is next, yeah. they're not really sure whether Miss Piggy is actually the diamond thief. Gonzo is suggesting that she's probably the thief because she's been lying about everything. And they develop the photo and they find evidence that it was actually Jarley Groden who <laughs> took the diamonds. And just as they develop it, though, much like... Uh, <laughs> Sorry, you broke me again. <laughs> much like the film Freaky Friday, the Muppets break in to the photo-developing Red Room and uh, ruin all of the film by shining light on it. Yeah, it happens to be the bathroom in the Happiness Hotel. And I was like, you know, this plot point couldn't have existed any other time, right? It's reliant on... Photo developing labs. 1981. We hardly knew ye. They, they couldn't do it with a cell phone. You know, if anybody had a digital camera, then the whole movie would have been over after then. Uh, so Kermit goes on a Ringo Starr-esque lonely walk through the park <laughs> and sits down on a bench. And uh, then we get our second big cameo of the movie. Bobby, wait. tell me about this one. Wait, 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 wait. Did wait, I miss wait. something? My favorite... My favorite line in the whole movie. Oh, yeah. Okay. I know the line you're talking about. <laughs> Kermit's sitting on the bench, and this uh, dad and kid walks by, and the kid goes, look, dad, a bear. And the dad goes, no, honey, that's a frog. Bears wear hats. It's so good. <laughs> it's my favorite line in the whole movie. Like you say, they just commit to all of their bits. <laughs> Rob, why don't you introduce this one? Because I'm going to full like, I know it's a cameo for someone. I don't know who the fuck it is. You, you don't oh, know fuck? So... No. Yeah, you don't know Peter Falk? No. Uh, it's Columbo. What the fuck's Columbo? He's the grandpa from The Princess Bride. Yeah, he's the grandpa from The Princess Bride, but he also was, uh, like, a detective. Okay, I, I know what Columbo is. I've seen The Princess Bride once. Oh, man. Princess Bride's so good. I was like, oh, this is a cameo for someone, and I'm sure this means something. I liked the sequence, though. Yeah. Well, so he, he, had a, he had a show. He had a show where he was a detective, and he solved... Yeah, Columbo. You just said. Mysteries. Yeah. And so the and joke I, is that this man is the worst fucking Sherlock detective in the world. <laughs> he goes through this whole story that has nothing to do with anything, and then Kermit just basically calls him out and says, no, nah, man, none of that is Well, explain right. it. He sits down, he says, you look like you've had a hard day. And Kermit says, yeah... It's, you know, tale as old as time. And he goes, I think I know exactly what happened to you. And Kermit says, oh, what was that? And he says, well, you started a business in the dry cleaning industry. And then he goes on this lengthy, lengthy speech. It's like two and a half minutes, which doesn't sound like much. But like in the context of a movie where someone gives a two and a half minute monologue, it's a long time. And then at the end, Kermit goes, it's amazing. Literally nothing you said is true. He and then Peter Falk goes, oh, okay, well, how about this one? And he starts to tell a new story. And Kermit goes, listen, shut We're trying to make a movie. I'm going to stop you there. And Peter Falk goes, I didn't know that. And then he tries to sell him a watch and then just grumbles and walks off as if to suggest that Peter Falk wasn't a cameo. He's just a dude who just walked up in the middle of the scene and they just kept it in. But now I'm picturing, you know, at the very end of uh, Princess Bride where uh, he's getting up and he's checking in pockets and he's going, okay. Okay, okay. I'm just imagining they're all full of watches now. He really milks it for all it's worth. Oh, Peter Falk. I like I like that guy. Falk. I keep saying Peter Falk. It's it's uh it's again, I'm having trouble with my consonants. <laughs> Alright, so then what happens after that, Robbie? Uh the bike flex. They sing a song on a bike. He, he finds Miss Piggy and they, they they resolve their differences. You describe it. I'm I got those consonant problems. <laughs> Honestly, I was running a little bit late here, so I did skip this song, but I just was watching everybody on the bike. So I don't actually know what the song was about. It's it's they just sing a song about riding a bike. Yeah. 
That's that's what I thought it was. Kermit, like, I mean, yeah, yeah, there's more flexes. It's like the bike is riding, because you're like, okay, yeah, it's radio-controlled bikes, that's why they have the legs moving, and then it's like, oh, no, now the bike is just riding, and Kermit's, like, standing on the handlebars. Like, oh, now he's upside down on the bike. <laughs> so, um, apparently this sequence was engineered by Brian Henson. Like, the whole thing was engineered by his, by Brian? Yeah, like the technology and just the concept of how they were going to complete this scene. Because it's a combination of puppetry and a lot of uh, remote-controlled, like, robotics. Mm -hmm. It was A lot of it was designed by Brian Henson. And apparently it took him months. And that was basically, like, what Jim Henson assigned him. He was like, okay, how about you do that sequence? We shoot in, like, August... It'll probably take you that long to figure it out. So he, he spent like months just like planning how they were going to shoot that scene. Understandably. Even the mice have their own bike. I don't know. That, that brought me so much joy. <laughs> yeah. Um, something else I caught on this scene, and this is just a, like a note I made of, was that I don't know what it is. Nobody emotes like a Muppet, which is funny because their eyes don't move and they have no lips. But when they when they spike the camera, you know exactly what they're thinking. That is kind of actually very impressive now that i think about it yeah when you say spike the camera it reminds me of the scene at the beginning when they're telling their editor that they're identical twins and kermit says well that's because he's not wearing his hat and like fozzy puts on the hat and then they at the exact same time both like yeah pull the exact same face but they're puppets they can't pull a face all it is is that both <laughs> puppets open just mouths. open their mouths at the same time but for a brief moment they looked the same to me. <laughs> <laughs> That's how good the puppets are. Yeah. That's how skilled those puppeteers are. Do you think they got one guy to put uh, both his arms in both puppets so they could he could, you know, time it out perfectly or it was two different puppeteers? Uh, well, a lot of those puppets require two puppeteers to operate one puppet. Like Fozzie yeah. is two puppeteers because like Frank Oz oh, yeah. operates the mouth and one of the arms and another puppeteer has to do the other arm. That's crazy. Kermit, I think, is usually can be done just by Jim Henson because the arms, they don't have operational digits. And so yeah. he's operating both arms with a stick. Did you know that uh, Swedish Chef is the only one that you can see a human hands? He has human hands. They filmed like the whole scene with him and then they realized they forgot to put the gloves on him and so Swedish Chef from then on has had human hands <laughs> well Swedish Chef is Jim Henson's voice do you think he's doing the puppet do you think he's got yeah, that he's mask on put the gloves on <laughs> that's just Jim Henson's hands yeah <laughs> I love Swedish Chef <laughs> so what happens next Rob oh, I don't, what happens after the bike song let me check my notes. I think they go to the fashion uh, fashion show. Oh, it is the fashion show. Because yeah. my next note is, uh, why is he American and she is British? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because a frog and a bear are brothers. Um, so yeah, they go to the fashion show. Charles Grodin and the three models are I believe it's pronounced Charles Grodin? My sincere apology, <laughs> Charles Grodin uh, and the three models, Darla, Carla, and Marla, are going to... Uh, frame Miss Piggy for the theft. And he's he's really broke up about it. He really doesn't want to do it because he truly loves her. He truly loves her, but uh, he realizes they're not going to get away with it if they don't have a patsy. The, the con is that Marla falls over, uh, and so Charles Gro... My goodness... <laughs> Charles Croden. Uh, sorry, it's too much No Boats on Sunday. No, 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 no. Don't don't, don't blame the sponsor. <laughs> don't blame the No Boats on Sunday. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Note to self, stop blaming sponsor. Mm. <laughs> nom, 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 nom. <laughs> Miss Piggy has to go uh, on the catwalk. And so Miss Piggy finally gets 
her dream in life uh, to be a runway fashion model. And she gets to model a swimsuit. And then it cuts to a imaginary sequence. Again, a huge flex where they have underwater puppets of Miss Piggy. I, I read there Frank Oz had three days of scuba training because he... <laughs> Because he has a fucking oxygen tank on because he's puppeteering Miss Piggy under the fucking water. There's the full body underwater suit of Miss Piggy, which we now are assuming is just Frank Oz in that suit. I think it's it's like the Roger Ebert review, but I think it comes up in a bunch of the reviews at the time. But this scene is singled out as being kind of perplexing because reviewers are like, why would kids aren't going to understand what this is satirizing? And... I honestly don't understand those reviews because it's like, who the fuck cares? It's not even satire. It's just amazing to watch. Like, yeah. you don't need to understand the Busby Berkeley references. Like, you just watch an amazing choreographed aqua musical with Miss Piggy while Charles Grodin is superimposed <laughs> doing like this tenor opera voice singing a love song to Miss Piggy. Over yeah. the top of this massive, <laughs> you know, massive choreographed routine. It's it's amazing. It was my favorite part of the whole movie. I couldn't believe it. it yeah, it was it was pretty awesome. I will say one thing, though, with the Miss Piggy costume, not the puppet, but the costume, it does have a bit of the uh, Scarecrow, uh, Scarecrow from Return to Oz vibes where the face doesn't really move. Fortunately, they don't have, like, too many long shots on it, but... That slow motion dive shot really did creep me out a bit because the proportions, they do fairly well mimicking the puppet proportions, but they were a little bit off and then the face didn't move and I was like, this is some sort of creepy shit here. Yeah, so then you cut back to the fashion show and all of this has been going on in Miss Piggy's imagination and she has fallen off the edge of the stage into a fountain and so she is covered and soaking wet Charles Grodin rushes out and gives her her coat to dry her off, but he has surreptitiously hidden the necklace in the coat, the necklace with the jewels removed. And so once she puts on the coat, Miss Piggy pulls out the necklace and says, what is this? And Lady Halliday says, that's my necklace, but the jewels are missing. Miss Piggy has stolen my jewels. What was... Jarley Grodin's plan here like his plan was Miss Piggy was going to take the place of the model on the stage yeah and then fall into the fountain he knew she was gonna fall so that he could rush out with her coat like how was this no, the plan no I think that was just fortune shining upon him I think it was more he probably would have just put the coat on her when she got backstage and then would have just pulled the same gag because she's modeling swimsuits so she'd obviously want to have a coat put on when she got back there okay all right, that makes sense. Okay. That's right. I just applied logic to a Muppet movie. <laughs> so Miss Piggy is arrested, and she goes to... The HM prison? H Her Majesty's prison. Yeah. She has a great line she throws at Charlie, uh, where she says, <laughs> you can't even sing, like, you can't even sing, you were dubbed, as she's getting hauled yeah. off by the police. And it's so good. And then she yells at Kermit, 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 ask them if I can keep the costumes. <laughs> Now the Muppets reconvene to figure out their plan because they have to somehow get Miss Piggy out of jail and or catch the actual jewel thieves who they know to be Charles Grodin. And Gonzo overheard Charlie Grodin and his model 
uh, hench women planning to steal the baseball diamond because now that two sets of diamonds have been stolen, Lady Halliday has decided that she is going to put the baseball diamond in a museum so she won't have it on her body at any time or in her possession at any time. And so Jarley goes, ah, everything's going according to plan. Now we'll just steal it from the museum. Which to me feels like that shouldn't be your plan. This is a bad plan. Doesn't that make it harder to steal the baseball diamond? You've put it in a place that has presumably much more strict security. They they put it in the Mallory Gallery. The Mallory Gallery. Which they say is impregnable. Yeah. But you can't break into it. It seems like... That was a bad plan, but I don't know. Whatever. The Muppets decide that in order to clear Miss Piggy's name, they have to go catch them in the act of stealing the baseball diamond from the Mallory Gallery. So they get in the Electric Mayhem's bus and drive across town. We haven't mentioned this before, but the Electric Mayhem's bus is awesome. And again, going back to the flex, it's this double-decker bus that is just packed full of puppets out of every fucking inch they're like on the top of the bus they're out of every window playing music jumping around flashing lights and this thing's just driving around london's west end and so there's just shots of this thing just booking it around london with all of these puppets it's so packed full um when they go to dinner uh for the date uh miss piggy says these are your friends and kermit says uh well the two on the fenders there's no room left on the bus. And so uh, Gonzo and Fonzie are just hanging off on the side. The mechanics of stuffing that thing full of puppets, like the amount of puppeteers you need to cram into that bus. It's a clown car, but it's a clown bus. There's like 30 puppets. Like there's So there's 30 puppeteers in there somehow? I don't know how they do it. It's amazing. Yeah. The climax of the movie is the Muppets go to stop Jarley from robbing this museum of the baseball diamond, while at the same time, Miss Piggy breaks out of jail by just literally bending the bars to her own strength. This It's funny, because that scene also, there's the they actually do have the famous kiss from this movie where they swap mustaches. When uh, Kermit goes to see her pretending to be her lawyer. Her lawyer, yeah, yeah. Because it's funny, because before I ever saw this movie as a kid, I saw that kiss in a sequence of like famous Hollywood romantic kisses. Oh, that was a famous Hollywood romantic kiss? Oh, okay. yeah. That and, like, Tobey Maguire in the first Spider-Man? Yeah. Um, uh, from Here to Eternity, Spider-Man 1, and uh, The Great Muppet <laughs> Caper. Top three. Uh, the three most romantic films of all time. Oh, no, it's uh, it's Princess Bride. That's the most romantic kiss. Peter Falk narrating it. Out of all the kisses. I can't do a Peter Falk impression. <laughs> <laughs> there have been ten kisses in all time that have been ranked the most romantic. This one blew them all away. And they swapped mustaches. (laughs) I I can't do an impression because I apparently don't know who he is. But yeah, as you say, Miss Piggy breaks out of jail. We get our our final big cameo here where she robs a truck and steals a truck from our good friend. Blackbeard's ghost. (laughs) Sir Peter Houstonoff. She takes the truck from him, throws him out of the truck. He lands on a pile of garbage only to find... Oscar the Grouch. He says, what are you doing here? And Oscar says, a very brief cameo. And then he turns to the camera and says, me too. And then that's the end. I really dug that. I thought that was great. It was such a nice callback uh, for us uh, watching Blackbeard's Ghost and then this. I, you know, I honestly would not have any idea who he was beforehand. So it actually was 
quite great that we watched these films in this order. I liked it a lot. Um, Yeah, so the Muppets try to break into the museum because that's what Charlie Grodin is doing. I'm not going to get into the details of it. If there's anything that jumped out to you guys, there's some hijinks. They break in from above. I really liked how they do like a barrel of monkeys thing with all the Muppets like suspended from the ceiling. There are some nice wide shots because like the complexity of dangling all those Muppets from one another and they're all operating somehow, whether it's remotely robotics or like strings like marionettes from someone up above. But there's a lot of very wide shots of puppets hanging from the ceiling, all of whom seem to be looking around and feeling quite distressed. One thing I do like there, Sean, sorry to interrupt, it was the shot of, again, a flex where they all uh, humped the drain pipe to crawl up it. Another rig to get all of these puppets to somehow animatronically crawl up a drain pipe was quite impressive, even though it did look like they were humping it. Yeah, I don't think that was animatronically. I think uh, that was a rig, and I think the puppeteers were somehow behind the wall. Oh, crazy. And I think I read that it was a very complicated scene. It took them a long time to get right. Yeah. The the mechanics of it kept failing. So <laughs> that one shot <laughs> that you point out actually was a very hard shot to get, apparently. Again, a huge flex. Um and then the one other thing that I liked uh, in the prep scene, they're going through uh, the di- the two different uh, groups, the the actual robbers and the Muppets, right? And uh, they're doing their checklists and they're lifting like, you know, radio controlled bomb diffuser, stuff like this, right? And uh, they're all doing the checklist. And then the, the cuts back to the Muppets are like, peanut butter, animal ate that, uh, rubber chicken. Oh, we don't got that. Like the, the Muppets have absolutely nothing to thwart this uh, jewel heist. It's a pretty funny juxtaposition. Well, it doesn't really matter because all they do is they just open the window from above and jump on them (laughs) and then they just kind of like wrestle with them a bit until lo and behold miss piggy who's was traveling by truck the truck got truck runs out of gas and then a stunt show van drives by and a stunt motorcycle conveniently falls out of the van And then we get Frank Oz on a motorcycle. And, <laughs> and then Piggy Frank Oz in. wearing a Miss Piggy mask gets on the motorcycle. Dressed as the evil Knievel. And yeah. drives the motorcycle to the museum. And I believe rides it through the window of the museum. It's like a stained glass window. It's the exact same entrance um, that the protagonist has in Resident Evil 2, where she crashes through what? the stained glass window <laughs> in the church. It is. I'm sorry, Mila. Miss Piggy did it first. Uh, And it was one of... I loved it in Resident Evil 2. I love it even more here because it's like a second story window, which suggests somehow (laughs) on the outside, there's a ramp. (laughs) There's a ramp. That Miss Piggy had to hit in order to be elevated high enough to crash through a second story window on her motorbike. Sean, do you remember when we watched Resident Evil in theaters opening night? Resident Evil 2? Yeah. I remember pointing out that shot. And then at the very end, when she has the force, and she kills that security guard through the camera. Yeah. Right? And you just screamed out, what? <laughs> and it was a dead silent theater, and everyone burst out laughing. <laughs> oh, I still think about that sometimes. My favorite part about that night was how Sean said the only thing that could possibly make that night better was if we could rent House of the Dead by Uwe Boll. <laughs> And then when we got to the video rental store, they only had copies for sale. And Liam, who is our friend with us, really didn't want to watch the movie because he hated it so much. But Sean didn't have his wallet with him. And he somehow convinced Liam to buy him a copy of House of the Dead. (laughs) 
Did we go watch it? We went back to your house and watched it. And Robbie was so mad that you were making him do this. I don't know why Robbie didn't just go home. He stayed there the whole night with his arms crossed so grouchy. <laughs> and didn't really critique the movie until partway through when they're, they're getting into the house and a woman is yelling and screaming like, we have to get inside the house. The zombies are coming. And the first time Robbie actually critiqued the movie went, she's holding a big yellow water gun. <laughs> And we paused and went back and watched the movie. And sure enough, for some reason in that shot, she's holding a big yellow water pistol and not a real gun. <laughs> oh, that movie's amazing. There's shots where zombies are leaping over trees and you can, like, see the mechanical ramps that are triggered and push them into the air. The boom is in the frame in the establishing shot of the movie. In The Great Muppet Caper, <laughs> Frank Oz took three days of scuba diving lessons. They spent a week shooting that Busby Berkeley sequence. Frank Oz, presumably wearing a Miss Piggy mask, drove around that motorcycle. (laughs) (laughs) And yet, Uwe Boll couldn't be bothered to not use a water gun. You know, like, the difference between the passion involved in these projects is pretty large. Yeah. What a wonderful comparison. Yeah. (laughs) I don't think I could think of a more fitting ending for the great movie. <laughs> to compare it to House of the Dead. So Miss Piggy rides her motorcycle in and saves the day because Miss Piggy knows karate. Of course she does. Yeah. Her like catchphrase is Hiya! Yeah. Um uh and that's basically the end of the movie. They catch Charlie Groden, Jarley Groden. <laughs> Sorry, Charlie. They they do play baseball with the baseball diamond. And uh Jarley goes to prison, but he confesses that he he did still love Miss Piggy. Um, uh, and they get back on the plane to go back to America, where presumably they're going to try to get their jobs back as crack reporters. Who knows? It doesn't really matter because they all get thrown out of the plane once again. So, Bobby, it is time for shooting the ship with Bobby. <laughs> Tell us about the shipping receiving of this airplane. Um, I mean, it's pretty much the same as the last. Correct labels, everything are great. I mean, no PPE to be seen, but who cares? They're flying on a plane. That's not a luggage handler, that's a steward. What's he doing in the luggage compartment? I don't know, it's the 80s. Throwing them out the door, because <laughs> the end of the movie is they're over top of America, so they all get thrown out of the airplane, and they parachute down as the closing credits play. That was The Great Muppet Caper. What'd you think? I liked it. It was such a good movie. It was so much fun. I have like two and a half pages of notes because I was forgetting to take them because I was just enjoying myself so much. Well, you're right, you know? Like, uh, I think we have less funny stuff to say because most of it is us just enjoying the movie. But uh, I thought it was quite good. I thought it was quite charming. Um... A lot of the critics at the time were down on the script as being kind of like a placeholder thing. A lot of critics seemed to be upset that it wasn't just a continuation of the Muppet movie, that somehow they were playing different characters. But I think if you've seen all of the work that Jim Henson did in The Muppet Show and further on, these characters were really just broad devices to facilitate their interests in terms of puppetry in terms of filmmaking in terms of comedy and a lot of the characters change dramatically through the show if you watch the first season of the muppet show miss piggy is barely in it she's like one of the dancing girls she's a totally different personality they like develop that character throughout the show gonzo is entirely a different character throughout the first half of the muppet show episode to episode most of the stuff that happens in it is them playing other characters Pigs in Space is Miss Piggy in a Star Trek satire. It's like one of their reoccurring sequences from The Muppet Show. So 
this I think fits in right with what they were doing with the Muppets. It's basically taking these archetypes, these these frameworks, and putting them into these different genres and just applying their creativity to it. Jim Henson and Frank Oz and the entire team. And I loved it. I thought it was delightful. Bobby, where would you rank it? It really was delightful. I would probably put this at my number three. Okay. Really? If not number three, it's definitely in the top five. It, like I said, it was just it was just a fun movie. And like you said, Rob, you can tell everyone who's there wants to be there. And just to like sit back and like watch that is something you don't really get from movies these days. I mean, I know like I'm cynical and I hate everything, but like even some of the other movies we've watched, you can tell people are just there for a paycheck. Like this movie, everybody wanted to be there. And like, I, I think, and for me, that's what really comes across. Um, I'm kind of the same as Bobby. Um, forgetting where I put uh, Blackbeard's Ghost, but I think I kind of liked it a bit more than that. Um, I actually re-listened to our Blackbeard's Ghost episode uh, just today. Uh, and to do some I was, Peter Usenoff research. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of funny. Um, you know, we've watched a couple of really, really terrible films since Blackbeard's Ghost, and I think I was too hard on it. Um, I think it was a pretty fun film. Oh, yeah, definitely. When I we watched that early on and we watched that, I was like, oh, this is going to be one of the lower films. No, for some reason, it's like in the top half. Like, like yeah. it's not bad. Yeah, no, exactly. So I'm, I'm definitely putting this like, yeah, probably top five. Um, Bobby said, yeah, everyone wants to be there. And there's something fun about it. Um, knowing kind of like, as I said, it was being a flex, right? But you could tell like they were just doing everything they couldn't do in the first one to like just watch them be like, we're doing exactly what we want. Uh, and I really, really, really appreciated that. Yeah. Uh, I think I'd probably put it about number four for myself. Uh, so that would be below, um, Return to Oz, below Darby, below, uh, uh, Flight of the Navigator. But, um, you know, above, I think, everything else that we've done. Uh, it's certainly kind of in that top tier of films. I really loved it. I love The Muppets. Uh, so I think this is maybe not their best film, but I hadn't seen it before, and I thought it was delightful. So it was a really good time. All right. So, you know, coming up, we have a very, very special episode. We are going to do Hocus Pocus 1. I have never seen it. Really? Should I expect it to be good? I forgot that you've never seen it. We'll get into Maybe I should save this for next week. But I legitimately was like scared of the witches when I was a small child. And I rewatched it last Halloween when it came oh, out. Yeah? So I'm, I'm down to rewatch it again. And uh, I have, I have, I was scared of them as well as a kid. Uh, I had nightmares of the witches. Um, but yet I loved Return to Oz. Makes no sense. But I've seen Hocus Pocus almost, well, not every Halloween, but like seems like every second Halloween since I was probably like. 18 or something for whatever reason uh so i've seen that movie a, a ton of times all right well you're gonna see it again because we're doing it next week yeah i could probably recite the whole thing i'm excited though i'm really excited that you have never seen it john how have you gone your whole life and never seen hocus pocus i, I don't know i didn't know it was such a big deal i i only really first started hearing people talking about it like two years ago i barely even knew it was a movie until people were like oh hocus pocus you don't love hocus pocus i don't even know it the sanderson but sisters Apparently, I'm going to be introduced. All right. So, Robbie, you were so upset last week. I'm going to let you do your catchphrase this week. All right? <laughs> no, I wasn't upset that you didn't let me do my catchphrase. I was upset that you uh, that you, you said we're not doing that anymore after I said it. I don't want to say it this time. Do you have a new catchphrase? No boats on Sunday. <laughs> 
<laughs> Brought to you by No Boats on Sunday. It's the podcast wore tennis shoes. <laughs> Boom! Just, just in case. We're not actually affiliated with them in case that gets us in any sort of trouble. <laughs> not actually brought to you by No Boats on Sunday until they give us money. Podcast War Tennessee's Boo! And that's the show. If you have a suggestion for a movie we should cover next time, send us an email at thepodcastwartennisshoes at gmail.com. We can also be reached on Facebook and Twitter at podwar. That's at P-O-D-W-O-R-E. And if you like the show, give us a good review on your podcast platform. It really helps us out. We hope you tune in next time. Thanks.